thank you so much for this day that we can come together and be in your presence. And uh, we just pray that you would pour your spirit on, out on us tonight and um, just help us be able to focus and, and understand the things that you have for us today, the words that you have. And, um, Lord, we are just so thankful for the things you do for us and thankful for blessing us every day. I just pray that you would be with us and continue to bless us, continue to. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. And uh, just be with us tonight, Lord. Be with Jeremy as he preaches, as he delivers your words to us. Um, help his mind be clear of, of distractions and things that might be bothering him. And um, just be able to speak through him to us, Lord. Um, just be with us tonight. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. <coughs> well... We're going to continue on with Jacob here this week. Now, if we remember where we last left Jacob was the story of stealing the blessing of his brother. And his parents are involved in the battle. They're involved in the struggle. They've each got their favorite, right? Rebecca loves Jacob and Isaac loves Esau. And so Rebecca has takes that point of connection she has with Isaac to say, hey, Remember Esau married these Hittite women. They've made our life miserable. Send Jacob off to my family so that he can find a wife that will actually like, basically. Find a woman who's, who's of the family line, who we will respect, who will not bring grief to us. So Isaac sends Jacob off with the promises. He blesses him with the promises. Now he's already stolen Esau's blessing of the firstborn. But as he leaves, he blesses him with the promises of Isaac and the promises of Abraham, his father, before him, right? So now we're left here with Jacob getting ready to leave. We left at that moment. He hasn't started his journey, but we left right at that moment where his mother and his father have sent him off to the family. And so Jacob leaves with the weight of his father's blessing, but that's all he knows. He, he just knows that his father says, this is for you. The question is, is God really behind it? Is God really the one behind these blessings? Or are these human realities? Are these human blessings that are being passed to Jacob? And, and the next story we read is going to make it clear. But tonight, we're going actually even further than that. We're starting in chapter 28, verse 10, where we left off. We're going to go all the way to 29, verse 30. We're going to see where his journey ends up, where he lands, and we're going to see his connection with the woman who's going to be his bride, Rachel. And we're going to see how he gets there. And we'll stop there, and next week we'll talk about the trauma of Leah and Rachel, which is, is really significant. But tonight... We're here in the story of Jacob and Laban and, and this back and forth between them. I named tonight's sermon Protection and Penance. I'll explain that at the end uh, of the sermon. I'll explain to you what I mean by penance. Uh, I mean it in my own way. <laughs> I use the term in a different way than most people probably do, but I think it's a theological term. It makes sense to me, so I use that term, but... This sermon is about both the fact that God protects His chosen and at the same time 
is chosen is not going to be free from the, the weight of his sins. He's not going to be free from what the cost is because of the way he's lived his life. We'll see both of those things tonight. And the reason I think that's so powerful because is because I think we live in that same reality. The Lord is for us. We are his chosen, his bride, his people. And we are given his protection. We are under his protection. There is no doubt. And yet we are not immune. <laughs> we are not immune from the weight of the choices we make. From the cost that may come uh, because of sinful choices. Because of wrong paths. And we're going to see that in the story of Jacob tonight. If you have your Bibles, I have it up here so you don't need them. But if you have them, we're in Genesis 28, verse 10. So, his father has blessed him and Jacob departs from Beersheba. And he went toward Haran where his family, his mother's family is from. He came to a certain place and he spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and laid down in that place. Now it's interesting. What we should understand from this is that Jacob must be out in the desert land. He must be out in the wilderness. Because what's unusual, most of the time, people wouldn't sleep out in the open because it's not safe. It's just not safe. And we're used to seeing this idea. We saw it with Abraham. That when visitors came by, it was your duty in the ancient Near East to invite them in. They were a hospitable people. That's foreign to us now. <laughs> but in that day, that was part of your duty. To, to invite in strangers, let them be in your home, to, to protect them. And here Jacob has no protection. He's out in the wilderness. He has nothing to protect him, nothing to guard him. And so it makes us think, okay, well, he must not be near a village or anything like that where someone would have said, Jacob, come into our home, be safe, lay down here, you'll be safe, and then continue on your journey. We don't see that hospitality. He's just out in the wilderness. And it's out in this wilderness, he's unsafe and unguarded, that the Lord appears to him. Verse 12. Jacob had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord himself stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, Jacob, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's a powerful vision. Now, from the New Testament, Jesus references this passage. If you know the book of John, 
very early on in Jesus' ministry when he's talking to Nathaniel, he references this passage about Jacob's ladder. And he says of himself, Jesus says of himself, that you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. He says that about himself. And, and the idea is that Jacob himself is the ladder of Jacob. Well, what's that saying? Well, in the New Testament, what it's telling us is this. Jesus himself is the connection between heaven and earth. Right? This ladder, sometimes translated stairway, it's kind of a, an obscure word in Hebrew. We don't know whether it's a ladder or a stairway or kind of like those old temples that would have, you know, the, the step, stair step um, levels, like a ziggurat is what they're typically called. They would have these stair step levels. But the idea of the, the point is that this is the gate of heaven where the, the angels of God are coming down to earth. And where the angels of God are going up from the earth into heaven. And so when Jesus references it, what he's saying is, no, 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 I am that connection. Heaven has met earth in me. The angels of God are coming and going because I am that connection. The place where heaven meets earth is Jesus. Now he's going to make that reference to himself. In this passage, what's interesting is that there's another thing that's being said to Jacob that we don't, isn't the focus of what the New Testament's trying to say, but it's what's being said to Jacob in this moment. One of the things that the Old Testament talks about is the idea of the angels of the nations, right? These, these powers that be, that, that were over the people. And, and of course, we have our own concept that sometimes is misguided for sure, but the concept of even guardian angels, you know, the angels assigned to us. Um, but the Old Testament talks about the angels of the land. They were, they were over the land, you know, so Daniel 10 will talk about the prince of Persia, the angelic being that stands over the, the, over the, the nation of Persia. But in this instance, one of the things that's probably being communicated and uh, old Jewish commentators would make this point about this passage is that the angels that are ascending are the angels of the land of Israel and they're leaving Jacob's presence because he's about to leave the land. And the angels of the land to which he is going, the Lord is sending before him to protect him in this new land. And the Lord himself stands at the top saying, I am pro protecting you. I am providing for you, I will not leave you until this is done. That's one of the ideas that stands behind this passage is that angels are going before Jacob into this new land, that they would guide his path. And that, of course, what the Lord says afterward makes sense of that. He says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bring you back here. I'll make sure you come back to this land. Unlike his father, Isaac, who Abraham said, don't even let him leave the land. He must stay here. Jacob is leaving. Jacob is going out of the land of promise. And of course, the fear is, if he leaves, is he really going to inherit the land? What, what if he never comes back? What if he never returns to the land of promise? How can he and his descendants inherit it if he doesn't return? So the Lord says, I will make sure that the blessings of Abraham, the promises to Abraham 
are on you, Jacob. The promise of the land, the promise of the descendants, the promise of the blessing. So now it's just not Isaac and Rebekah saying it, but the Lord Himself has said to Jacob, these promises are yours. The promises are for you. This isn't just your parents saying this. This is me, the Lord Himself, speaking to you. The promises are yours. So Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He anointed it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. Bethel, which means house of God in Hebrew. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. And he renames it after what he realized. That, oh, this must be the house of God. So he calls it house of God, Bethel. So he knows now. He knows that this is not just something that his family invented wholesale. <laughs> that they just put on him. No, the Lord stands behind it. He's had the vision that proves it on his journey. And he's had the promise, the promise that's for him, that he will return to the land. The Lord is watching out for him. And the next story confirms it. Before we get there, though, Jacob says this. He made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat, and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. He promises the tithe in return. What's interesting about this passage is many people interpret it really negatively about Jacob. They say, well, Jacob, he just said, the Lord just said he was going to protect him. And now Jacob's saying, if, if you protect me, if you'll do this. Well, the Lord just promised he'd do it for you. Well, does Jacob have no faith? He just has no faith that the Lord's actually going to do it, so he has to bargain with him. You know, it's like the prayer today, right? It's like, well, if the Lord ever gave me a Ferrari, maybe I'd believe in him. You know, like kind of arrogant. And many commentators interpret that in this passage that Jacob it makes this bargain with God. Hey, do it my way, God, and I'll believe in you. I think that completely misses what's going on with Jacob. This isn't a statement of doubt. This is a statement of supreme faith. What's odd is that at the same time as so many people seeing that kind of manipulative, vending machine view of God in Jacob here, what he's saying is that I will make you my personal God. It's the exact thing we talk about today when we say to, to kids, hey, you got to make your faith your own. You can't have your parents' faith. We say that all the time. You can't just ride on your parents' coattails, think that's enough for you. You've got to make your faith your own. That's what Jacob's doing. He knows that the Lord has been the God of his clan. 
He knows that the Lord has been the God of his fathers. God said it. I'm the God of your father Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. Jacob's point is not to say, like, somehow you'll become my family God. He already is. He's saying, I will make you my God. In intimacy of relationship and in personal covenant. That's what Jacob is committing to. He's not testing God in the negative sense of the word that we think of, like, testing God to, to, you know, prove himself. No, this is an act of faith. The test of God in this way, I think God still answers today. The one who approaches in faith and says, Lord, I want to know you're real. Show yourself to me. I think God still responds to that prayer today. That's Jacob's prayer. That's Jacob's vow. Lord, if you prove true to your promises, if you keep me safe, if you bring me back to my father's house, I will know that not only have you protected and provided for me, I will promise that you will be the God of my life for all my days. Because you've proven faithful. You've proven who you are. And you've proven that you are the God who protects and loves his people. That's the heart of Jacob in this passage. I hate that people miss that because... Jacob's prayer is really beautiful. It is a prayer of faith. I think it's a prayer that we all should be praying. (laughs) Lord, prove yourself to me. Show me your character. Show me who you are. So that I might know you. So that I might commit my heart further to you as my God. That's the prayer of Jacob. So, Jacob has a vision. He hears the promises are his from the, from the lips of the Lord himself. And then he makes a vow with the Lord. Prove yourself who you are. And you will be my God. And then he goes on his journey. He continues on his way. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. So there's this large stone that covers the well, of course, to protect it from anything getting in. You don't want like a sheep falling in there and rotting and poisoning the water supply. So there's this big stone that they put on it to protect the water supply. And what's interesting is they're all just kind of sitting around there. You don't know what's going on. It's, it's implying that the stone is very large, that it takes a lot of effort and strength to move it. Maybe multiple men to really move this aside, multiple shepherds. And so Jacob shows up here and, and he sees what's going on. And so he says to them, he's still trying to figure out where he is where his family is. And so he says to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And so Jacob said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. So Jacob said, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep. 
and go pasture them. But they said, We can't until all the flocks are gathered. Then they roll the stone from the mouth of the well, and then we water our sheep. So while Jacob was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. It's interesting. We kind of pass over it, but Jacob, remember, he was the quiet boy. (laughs) He was the tent boy. He was a mama's boy. Right? He was the quiet, peaceful, tent-living man. That's how they described him. Esau was the hunter. He's the brash one. He's the one who goes out and hunts and, and is a man of game. All of those things. Jacob, all of a sudden, doesn't seem like the same person. He's very open. He's very upfront. He He not only talks to them you know, just openly, but then he also is like critiquing their practice of watering their sheep. He's kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe a good example would be like an American in a foreign country, critiquing everyone's practices. <laughs> you know, we have that tendency, you can get a little arrogant and you'll be like, what, well, you guys are doing this wrong. That's Jacob. That, but what's weird is that doesn't sound like Jacob. It doesn't sound like the scheming person we saw before. It's possible that the promise of God really impacted him. Impacted how he thought of himself. Impacted his courage. And so he tells him, what are you doing? Just water your sheep and and go pasture them. Why are you all waiting? Their custom clearly was to wait until all the flocks were there and then they'd feed them one by one. You know, the one flock and then the next flock and the next flock. But Jacob seems to think their, their practice isn't good enough, so he suggests his own way. So when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and he rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So he's really strong, first of all. What normally takes several people to do, Jacob just does it. He's, whether he's just like adrenalined up because he found the right people, or, or whatever, he's, he's, or he's just got some serious strength. He rolls the stone away, and also he, he just forgets that everyone's been waiting there to water their sheep and waters Rachel's sheep ahead of everyone. Like, this is a big cultural faux pas that he's committing here. But he's just so enthused. And what's the enthusiasm? Well, I think it's this. That protection we just heard about, God's proven He found exactly where he was supposed to go. And he found exactly the family he was meant to go to. It's supposed to remind us exactly of Genesis 24. Remember the servant of Abraham going to find a wife for Isaac, Rebecca. What's he do? He he goes to the well and it just happens that the family's there, right? This situation, this scenario reflects that one exactly. Jacob goes and he sees, oh, it just happens to be Rachel's on his way. Is that just a big coincidence? No. No. God's hand is at work. The protection and providence of God is moving Jacob to the right space, the right place, to find his family. But it's interesting because what that's also going to do is remind us that we've seen these people before. Who else was involved in Genesis 24 when the servant came to find a wife for Isaac? Laban was there. We've gotten to know a little bit, not much, but a little bit about Laban and who he is, what type of man he is. We saw it in Genesis 24. Verse 11, 
Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. He's overjoyed that he found his family, what he was looking for, what his journey was for. So Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And then Jacob related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And Jacob stayed with Laban a month. Okay. So Jacob tells Rachel, Hey, I'm I'm your relative. And she runs to tell his father. Now again, Laban's been in this situation before. What do you think's running through Laban's mind in light of the fact we saw what happened with Genesis 24? Laban's like, I'm about to make some money. (laughs) The last guy who came, he was rich. He brought me camels. He brought me gold. He gave my daughter, or my my sister, he gave my sister all these golden rings and bracelets. Laban's probably like, how awesome is this? Most of the people don't get one of these in their lifetime. I'm getting two. Laban probably has those expectations in his mind as he runs out to meet Jacob. Is Jacob anything like the wealthy servant of Abraham? No. It's like his poor homeless nephew said, hey, I got to stay with you, man. Can I come in? That's what Laban receives. I'm not saying Laban's interpretation is right, but I'm saying you have to acknowledge what he sees. Jacob comes to him with nothing. No entourage, no money, no camels, no donkeys, nothing. He's destitute. He has nowhere and nothing. And only the Lord has been guiding him to this place. So, he hears the news, he runs out. Finds out it's, it's, it's like, hey, my bum nephew came to stay with me for a while. That's how Laban understands it. What does Jacob do? It says that Jacob related to Laban all these things. Now, this is an ambiguous statement. It doesn't tell us what Jacob told Laban. But what it seems to imply is that Jacob told Laban the story of his life. What things does that include? Well, we don't know. We don't know how far back Jacob is going to tell. But things we're probably pretty sure that he told him is this. My brother wants to kill me. Really, Jacob, why why does your brother want to kill you? Well, I stole his blessing. Really, how'd you do that? Uh, well, I kind of got all hairy, and I, I, I made myself look like my brother, and then I, I t- had my father bless me in his place. I, I kind of took the firstborn blessing. That's likely that Laban heard some of these things. Maybe he didn't go all the way back to the lentil stew and, and stealing the birthright. But some of these things Laban has heard, he's... He started to understand what type of person at least Jacob has been. And Jacob seemed, it seems like Jacob, he's, he's overjoyed, like I said. He probably not, he's probably not on his guard. He's probably telling his uncle, these are the things that happened. And, here, and my mother, your sister, she sent me to you because she was afraid that my brother would kill me. All of this stuff Laban's hearing. 
And I know it seems like I'm harping on this for a long time, but I think it's going to make sense of what happens next. And when we read this story, we don't think about where Laban is at for what happens. And we don't see the bite. We don't see the irony of what's about to take place. So Laban says, hey, you're my flesh and my blood. Come stay with me. So Jacob stays with him a month. Now remember what Rebecca said in the last chapter. Rebecca said, go stay with my brother for a few days and then return to me when your brother's wrath has subsided. When Esau's wrath has subsided about what you did to him, then come home. Now he's already been gone a month. Well, more than that because you have the journey too. But he's just stayed with him a month. What Rebecca thought would be a few days has already become one month. But at the end of this month, Jacob's been staying there and Laban's like, hey, just because you're my relative, does that mean you should serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Okay, we're kind of predicting this because we already have seen well scenes. We've already seen the scene in 24 with with, uh, Abraham's servant finding a wife for Isaac. We know that this Rachel thing, there's probably something there. We're predicting that. But we don't know the extent of Jacob's feelings. Does he really like this woman? Does he not? We don't know yet. Now it's going to give us some background information. Laban had two daughters. Okay, well we saw Rachel. Who's this other girl? The name of the older was Leah. Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah, most likely, we don't know exactly, but most likely means cow. Which doesn't sound nice in terms of, you know, what we think. Like, oh yeah, it looks like a little cow. <laughs> it probably did not imply the way we hear it when we say that. But the idea is, is that they had these kind of effective uh, 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 names, these kind of affectionate names. So Leah probably means cow, and Rachel means you, like a female sheep, E-W-E, you know, a you. So they have these kind of uh, cute pet names in terms of their names. So you have cow and sheep, right? These two sisters. But it says this, Leah's eyes were weak. They were soft. But Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now, we don't know what the soft eyes exactly means. It's kind of an obscure idiom from Hebrew. But... Probably, or at least what we can kind of think of is she didn't have the fire in her eyes. She didn't have the sparkle. She didn't have the beauty that Rachel had. Rachel, she was beautiful of form and face. And Leah, the older sister, she was, I don't know, she was dumpy. I don't know what to say. (laughs) But, But here's the thing. We're going to see the weight of that statement, both this week and next. The sister pain is real. I, mean, I, I just see that. I don't have any sisters. I'm a, I'm a family of boys. So I have brothers. I understand all the murderous intent. <laughs> but sisters, that, that is, can be so painful. Just the comparison. Oh, look at the beautiful one. Look at the ugly sister. The unloved sister. That's what's going on with Leah and Rachel. 
Now Jacob, Jacob, he of course, he loved Rachel. So Jacob said, I will serve you seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Now, the average wage in that day was a half shekel or a shekel a month. And we know that the Bible in Deuteronomy, I think it is, says the, the average bride price, or the, excuse me, the max bride price would be 50 shekels. That's the most a man would ever pay for a bride, according to the law. 50 shekels, right? This is well above that. If you get a shekel a month for seven years, think about that. That's, that's 12 shekels a year, basically. I mean, he's paying above the maximum bride price, according to the law. What's the point? I know that's obscure. What's the point? He loved this woman. He's going to pay exorbitantly because his love for her is so great. He says, I'll work for you for seven years. And the only wage I receive is to marry your daughter at the end of it. So Laban said, oh, of course, it's better that I give her to you than that I give her to some other man. Stay, stay here with me, work with me, and I'll give her to you. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Jacob loves Rachel, and there's that few days again. Now, it's been seven years and one month, but it was like a few days to him. But for Rebecca back home, seven years, she hasn't seen the boy who was meant to go away for a few days. Like I told you last week, Rebecca is bearing the weight of the scheme she concocted. It's been seven years since she saw the son she loved. So after the seven years, Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is completed, that I may go into her. Now, this is odd, because we don't expect that Jacob should have to ask for his wife at the end of the seven years. You imagine Laban would have already been planning this. But Jacob, some reason, he has to go ask for his wage, what he's rightfully to be paid. So he has to say it. So, so already maybe we have a sneaking suspicion Laban is not up to snuff on, on the deal. He's not going to follow through. Laban gathered all the men of the place and he made a feast. Right? The traditional wedding feast. This is a, a, a week-long celebration normally. Now, some of the things that normally would happen in a wedding aren't going to happen. Jacob's family isn't there. Jacob is alone. And interestingly, like Jacob being alone actually is one of the reasons he's susceptible to being manipulated, to being abused, to being taken advantage of. He has no one to stick up for him other than this family he's with now. And he has no property. He has nothing. So, in the evening, Laban took his daughter, Leah, and brought her to him, and Jacob went in to her. The wedding night, typically, even with these week-long celebrations, the first night of the wedding was, of course, the consummation night. They're going to make true their vow to one another. They're going to have sex. But Jacob, whether it's drink or the nighttime or whatever, somehow Laban substitutes his daughter Rachel with Leah. And Jacob goes in to her, and they sleep together. 
It also says Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So he gives a maid to, to take care of his daughter. As That's his, his gift to his daughter for the wedding. But it came about in the morning, behold, it was Leah. That's what Jacob wakes up to. That's what he is woken up to. It's not the woman of his dreams. It is someone else. So he goes to Laban and says, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? Now with all that I've said about Laban and all that I've said about the situations we walked through with Jacob, hear the weight of this next line. Think about how much it cuts Jacob to the core. Laban said, it is not the practice in our area to marry off the younger before the firstborn. It is not the practice in our area, in our place, to put, is actually the language of the Hebrew, to put the younger before the firstborn. You see what's happening? Saying, Jacob, you're illegitimate. Maybe in your family it flies to let you usurp your brother's place. Not here. We're not the type of people that lets the younger receive before the firstborn. What's Jacob's response? Well, sorry, I'll get to that in a minute. Jake, uh, Laban continues on. He says, complete the week of this one, the one you just married, through deception. And we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Now, what was Jacob known for? What does Esau say he's known for? What is the essence of Jacob's life? It's deception. He's the deceiver. He's the heel grabber. He's the usurper. Well, the deceiver just got deceived. He just paid his due for the way he lived. That payment is going to cost him and his wives for the rest of their lives. We're going to see it play out in the rest of Genesis. But I am so struck by that line. Because I can't help but think Jacob. He receives that. He receives what Laban says. Because he knows what he did was wrong. When he hears, it is not the practice in our place to put the younger before the firstborn. Jacob knows, he knows, he knows that what he did with his mother was wrong. It cuts him to his core. Does Jacob fly off the handle and leave and say, how dare you? How, I'm never, does he murder him? Does he do any of these things? What's he do? No, he did it. He completed her week and he gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife. Laban gave 
another maid to Bilhah, to his daughter Rachel. That was her gift, her bride gift. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. But he served with Laban for another seven years. Now part of that is, of course, Jacob's in no position to make any demands. He has nothing. He has no recourse. He can't go to the courts and fix it. He has nothing. But I think the other part of it is that Jacob recognizes that he's paying for what he's done. The weight of his decisions has come back to haunt him. So when I look at Jacob in this passage, I see a reflection of realities that we experience as Christians today. Sometimes we don't like to. I know, it's, I go, I go in waves. I, I go where I think the scriptures are going. And I, that's unfortunate I have to do messages like this. It feels like I've done a lot of them lately. Where the lesson is a hard lesson, to, it's a hard teaching to hear. <laughs> Part of this lesson is that we pay for our sins. People use different terminology for that. They have different ways of expressing it. Sometimes the most common one people use is, oh, the natural consequences. Those are the natural consequences of your actions. I don't like that term. I don't like that term because I think it's not theological enough. It, it almost takes God out of the picture of it. It's closer akin to divine justice. <laughs> A retribution for the way you live. It's what I call penance. Now, penance has a very specific theological term when it comes to, say, the Catholic Church. And what it means in the Catholic Church is, of course, going to your, your priest and confessing your sins, and then you get penance as a result, which means you, once you've confessed, you're given an act of penance. Hey, say these prayers five times, or whatever it is that they suggest to you. And then you do your act of penance. That's the Catholic understanding. That's high church understanding. And I think uh, other churches do it as well that are all high churches. So, you know, they have a, a, a structure and order. Um, I think Anglicans might even do it. So that is that standard definition in those churches for penance. But when it comes to me, when I talk about penance, I'm not referring to that. I'm referring to the fact that there's a reality of weight to the sins that we commit, that we do actually pay for them. And I don't mean that in a salvific way, obviously. Right? Jesus, if we look at it from an eternal perspective, Jesus, either he paid for your sin or he hasn't. So in one sense, yeah, in an eternal way, you can pay for your sin by going to hell and spending the rest of eternity paying that off, which never ends. That payment is never fulfilled. Or if you accept Jesus eternally, he has paid for your sin. So that's the salvific payment of sin. That's not what I'm talking about. It's a different reality. What I'm talking about is a temporal sense, an earthly sense, in which God brings justice about in the lives of people. And people do, I believe, people do. I, I think I have. I can point to moments in my life that I have paid for my sins. That there has been some level of 
something that has, has happened that I just recognize, Lord, like, I repent, I'm sorry, and yet I know that the punishment is just for what I've done. I think that's what's going on in Jacob's life. Jacob has been this supreme deceiver, and all of a sudden he's faced with what it's like to be on the other end of deception. He's faced what it's like in the devastation that ensues when you are deceived. It makes you wonder, maybe Jacob for a second is like, is this how Esau felt? Because it's awful. And yet, somehow, we just read that God is protecting Jacob. God is guiding Jacob. The promises are going to be brought to fruition in Jacob. And yet, Jacob is somehow paying for his sins. I think that's the reality we live in, too. And I think the New Testament actually answers that for us. It actually speaks to us about that reality. Before I get there, I'll, I'll give you a few examples of what I'm talking about, payment of sin. It actually, it's scriptural. I'm not just making this up. It's not my own theology. I think the Bible speaks to it. Isaiah 40, for example. The great passage of Isaiah 40, which we all think of, when we all think of it, we think of rising on wings like eagles, that beautiful imagery that Isaiah 40 talks about. But actually where Isaiah 40 talks about, it's talking about return from exile after Babylon has destroyed Jerusalem. And so when you get to Isaiah 40, the chapter opens like this. Comfort, comfort, O Jerusalem. Says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What's the point? Well, the point is Jerusalem has been smashed. It's been crushed. Babylon wrecked it and they ruined the temple. There's nothing left. And now it's time for what? It's time for restoration. It's time for comfort because Jerusalem's paid for her sins. Here's an example of it. Okay, Amos 3. Listen to this. This is still about Israel. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. What? <laughs> Wait, hold on. <laughs> God's saying that because you're the family I chose, therefore I'm going to punish you? That seems odd. <laughs> that does not sound like what I would think would be said. Since you're the family I chose, I'm going to punish you for all your sins. How does it feel sitting with that? I think the New Testament explains it. 1 Peter 4. For it is time for judgment 
to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? He's quoting Proverbs 11 here at 1 Peter. Right? There is a judgment to be had even in the household of God. Is that scary? At one level, I guess it is. We should have a healthy fear of living in unholiness and unrighteousness before a holy and righteous God. I absolutely agree with that. I think the passage that makes sense of it all, though, is Hebrews 12. I wrote 13, I'm sorry. It's 12. Is Hebrews 12. For consider him. Who's him in this passage? That's Jesus. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Here he's quoting Proverbs 3 about the wisdom of the Lord, not, skir- not, not uh, spurning it, not scorning it, right? To receive the wisdom of the Lord. Well, according to Proverbs, part of receiving the wisdom of the Lord is to accept his discipline. The author of Hebrews goes on. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then guess what? You're illegitimate children. And you're not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He, God, the Father, He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Amos 3 makes sense in light of that. The Lord's saying, You are the family that I've chosen, and therefore, like my sons, I will discipline you for your sin. 
For if the Lord said something different, what does Hebrews 13 tell us it would be? They wouldn't be sons at all. We have gotten, I think, to a place where judgment and and discipline means so little to us as Christians. And I don't mean to us personally, but just broadly in this idea of kind of the American Christianity that that there is no punishment. There is no, it's just all love and fluff and grace. And and that's all that exists. And that is good that those things exist. I'm not taking away from that. I'm not detracting. But we have to have a biblical understanding of love. And biblical love is not permissive love. It's not do whatever you want and I'll take care of it for you. Paul, he revolts against that in Romans. He says, should we keep on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. No. No, the Lord is the God of love. He is love and therefore he must discipline evil but for the Christian for the Christian discipline for the the people of God for Jacob in this instance discipline as as its purpose is to train for righteousness it's to change the very core of who you are it's so that you might yield the fruit that God intends for you That is so different than the judgment of the unbeliever. God, if he is truly love, he cannot let sin and evil go on forever. That would be unloving. To let all the oppressed people be oppressed forever. To let evil be done and rape and murder and all of these things to go on indefinitely. To just crush people. What loving God could let that go on eternally? No, there is a limit to God's patience. And he will judge evil. And at the end of days, at the end of time, he will take care of evil, he will remove it from this earth, and and the earth will be made perfect, pure, good, again. But the judgment that comes for evil for the unbeliever is a totally different reality than the reality of what we read about in Hebrews 13. The discipline for sons, for daughters, for legitimate children. So we can't scorn it. No, we're actually meant to be trained by it. So when I talk about the concept of penance, when I use that terminology, what I'm talking about is a recognition (laughs) that sometimes when we pay for our sins... We accept it as an act of repentance, acknowledging that God is at work training us for righteousness. That's an act of of, of penance. I don't mean go and self-flagellate. I'm not saying you have to go get a whip of nine tails and scourge your body. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm not trying to, to be graphic about it. I'm saying that the Lord, when He brings that discipline, there is a heart of repentance that can accept that. That is different than the one that says, this is so unfair! 
This is so wrong. Why could this happen to me, God? I think there's a heart that sometimes the act of penance is recognizing that we sometimes we deserve discipline. Sometimes the Lord is bringing about that harvest and we have to accept. I think Jacob's an example of that. Jacob's an example of that in this passage. And I don't think we should separate the two. Protection and penance. They, they work together. They're both meant to make us into the people God wants us to be. His protecting, guiding hand is at work, leading Jacob, moving him where he needs to go, providing for him when he has nothing and no help, no, no one to speak out for him. The Lord's with him. And at the same time, Jacob's paying for these things that he molded his life after. Really dark things. Deception and war with his brother and, and familial strife. All these things that his life had surrounded. He, he's getting a taste of it from the other end of how dark and evil it is to be on the receiving end of those things. And according to Hebrews 12, it's training them. It's training him to be a man who one day might... I'm not saying he ever earned it. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I am going to say this because I believe it. It's training him to be a man who might be worthy of the promises. A man of righteousness. A man of God. God's at work training Jacob to be that man. And it takes a lot of work because Jacob's got a lot of things to work out. And still, he is the chosen one despite being the deceiver. The protection of God is on him and God is going to mold him into who he wants him to be. And I think, I think that's exactly where we find ourselves as Christians. The hand of God is at work and we all need some molding too. And it's a painful process. It's a, it's a hard process to be transformed by the spirit of the living God. The refining fire that brings the dross up to the surface and skims it off so that we might be perfect. That we might be perfect. And that's, that's the goal of sanctification, that we would actually be like Jesus. Now we, are, we may not obtain that in this lifetime, obviously, but, but that's the process. The Lord's at work doing that. So my my uh, my admonition to you tonight is to not be afraid of the discipline of the Lord because it's trustworthy. You know, we we think about that proverb that the you know the the, the wounds of the friend are more trustworthy than the kisses of the enemy. We think about that a lot. How, how much more infinitely so is that true of God? That his wounds, when he wounds us, it's infinitely more faithful than the multiplied kisses of even our best friend. I've got to trust that God's at work. He's molding us. He's transforming us.
Don't be afraid. He disciplines those whom he loves so that he might prove you are truly his sons and daughters. 